Good day, everyone, and welcome to this Lightbend podcast. I'm your host, Oliver White, Chief Storyteller at Lightbend, and today I am absolutely thrilled to sit down with Christopher Hunt, my former colleague and now the founder slash CTO of an Australian agriculture tech startup called Titan Class. Titan Class is actually commissioned by Cisco Systems, an industry titan of its own, to develop a field-based digital twin IoT solution that gathers and analyzes various sensor metrics to enable intelligent farming. And I hope I got that right. Uh, the story here is that we've all become increasingly aware that the connected world of IoT is touching our cars, but also our coffee machines and light bulbs and other things in pretty revolutionary ways. But I would say some of the less visible innovations resulting from this digital transformation are found in what's going on with connected agriculture and IoT. Essentially, how are we digitizing our world's food and raw materials resulting in less waste, higher yields, and smarter planting strategies. Chris, it's wonderful to connect with you again after some years. Uh, before we get into it, could you just give us a quick potted bio of yourself? Um, how do you spend your day? What's most interesting to you in the work you do and so on? Oh, wow. Thanks so much for that fabulous introduction, Oliver. I feel almost important in the world. <laughs> well, you most certainly are. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just like to say, you know, it's kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> when you... Um, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> I'd like to say we can edit that out, but... We oh, you can't? Okay. I don't know if we can. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, when you uh, when we used to travel and we used to enter countries and we fill out a sort of country form, you know, like a form to enter the country and so forth, and it says occupation, mm -hmm. I would always, and still always, well, I don't because we don't get to travel anymore, you know, say computer programmer. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's just like the uh, easiest way to describe, you know, me. Uh, I, I've been doing it for almost four decades and uh, you know I love programming computers now as much as I ever have you know so that's probably the easiest way to sum up um, me um, and you know I spend uh, although you know uh, I run uh, you know uh, Titan class with with my wife as well um, you know I, I I still mostly get my kicks out of programming you know I, mm. I really that's my my happy place and I, uh, with my wife, you know, we joke, actually, I don't, I don't joke. She thinks I'm joking, you know, but if I didn't have to work, you know, then uh, I would still do, do this for free. So I think that probably summarizes me. All right. That, that's, that's a really nice, nice uh, intro, I have to say. Thank so you. you're, you're a computer programmer at heart. And yet, if we go to your website, I, I see pictures of you in the middle of a farm with a big floppy hat on to protect your, yourself from the brutal Australian sun. Yeah. And so it sounds like quite, quite an interesting journey. Maybe we could talk, start off with just talking a little bit about where, do, where, where have agriculture and you know, tech, especially IoT, where, where have they kind of joined together over the last couple decades? And mm. um, how do you find yourself as a computer programmer in the middle of a farm with a uh, with, with uh, gathering sensor metrics through physical devices? 
<laughs> well, so I think that's a great question. Um, and so, you know, I, I half jokingly say when I married my wife, I inherited one half of Australia or about a third of Australia's population. You know, it seems that anywhere we go in Australia, we're, you know, we end up on some property and there's somewhere to stay. And so throughout, um, uh, you know, two decades of marriage, um, you know, I've stayed on many, many farms and I've always wanted, I've always thought, you know, because I like being out on the farm. You know, these, these are great places, you know. Um, and I think, well, how can I apply what I know to this world of, of agriculture and farming? And so that's been a, a question I've had for actually many, many years. Um, but it's probably only until recent times that it, the technology has become economically viable, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the technologies that we now use in agriculture have been around for a very long time. You know, I, I like to talk about the Voyager 1 and 2 space probes, you know, of the 1970s that are beyond our solar system and are still communicating with us, taking almost 24 hours at the speed of light for data to get back to us, you know, at less than the power of a light bulb. And this is 1970s technology, but, you know, this, not saying that everyone can have a Voyager 1 and 2 in their backyard now, you know, but we can communicate with these little sensors that are fairly cheap to make, you know, at the five, 10 kilometers with very low power. And this has been a huge enabler um, for agriculture. So just, just the availability, you know, at, uh, of this technology at the right price, you know, has, has um, um, really transformed things. And this has happened certainly within the last five years. And what I also observed was a lot of ag was coming to tech but and i still don't see a lot of tech coming to ag right so how, how, do, you, how do you mean what's an example yeah so um farmers are incredibly innovative people right they do everything it's not like you know like something breaks you can't just go down to the shops locally or the mechanics locally and get things fixed because particularly with australian geography as well we're talking of tens of kilometers away, 50, 100 kilometers away, you know, to, uh, you know, to the nearest town or something like that. So they do things themselves, right? And a lot of farmers have actually embraced tech. You go to a farm, uh, there is a lot of technology on the farm, right? But mm -hmm. what I noticed was it was a lot of disparate technology. You know, you have one system for water, one system for soil moisture probes, one system for grain management and so forth, you know? And so, uh, there was no real cohesiveness to all of this. So farmers were trying to do this and people around the farmers in those communities were trying to do things as well, but not in sort of a cohesive way and coming from a, an agricultural background, not from a tech background. Now, you know, the inverse of tech coming to ag isn't always that great either, you know, because what do we know about ag, right? You've got to, you know, you've got to understand agriculture to, to solve good, you know, problems well in that space, um, you know, but it, it, there's a, and I would say today, there's still this very strong imbalance. There's still too much of uh, ag coming to tech, but not tech coming to ag. So people in our, in our industry, you know, in, in the in the startups, well, in my bend, you know, um, you know, if you think about our colleagues, uh, you know, within Lightbend, um, it's not a lot of that kind of person uh, who are actually applying themselves to the world of agriculture. I think what there's this perception that's kind of not interesting. 
But the problems to me are absolutely as interesting as writing the next social media app or the next database or whatever it is. And yeah, that that's that's interesting. So the so in fact, uh, one of one of what I was thinking, I was thinking to myself earlier. I wonder how 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 connected the average Australian farmer is to tech, um, and and whether that's more or less than we might expect. Um, so what what sounds like what, what you're describing is is a situation where um, hardware has been. Innovation with technology in terms of hardware has been coming for, for several decades, as you mentioned, the Voyager probes. And the fact that a farm actually is very technically um, advanced, if you, if you would consider what you read from picture books or encyclopedias. Um, but it sounds like it's the connectivity of it and the, well, let's say the IoT aspect and the sharing of data between different parts, that that's where things have been lagging. Yeah, definitely. I, one thing that in cities we fail to really appreciate, uh, and again, and actually, I was going to say again, you know, with with our geography here in Australia, but it's actually not just Australia. But rural communities tend to not be well connected. Um, in terms yeah. of having the internet available. Now, of course, there is satellite, there are economics to consider in the use of satellites. Um, this situation is perhaps changing with Starlink. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with low earth orbit satellites and connectivity there. Um, and that'll definitely become part of the blend. But to date, there's been you know, you, you only can you only have to go 10, 15 kilometers outside of a rural center for mm. there you know be no connectivity anymore right so I mean, this means you look at your phone and there's no data connection or even a mobile a, a gsm connection or there's nothing there's no bars at all you know really? okay you don't have to go very far for that to occur and i used to think this was a you know in particular an australian problem but i was in the uk at the beginning of last year and uh you know for a very short period of time and uh, we were staying on a rural property there on the farm. And guess what? This is in the UK. There was no connectivity, you know, mm. so it's, it's not a problem exclusive to, to Australia, but you know, may, maybe we, we magnify it. I can certainly say it would be a problem in the US as well. So the, the use cases that, that we're looking at for agricultural IoT, they, they, they cannot assume a regular, consistent internet connection how do you uh, how do we how do we look at the, these use cases in that context so I think uh, you know and uh, the the reactive movement that lightbend have pushed recognizes this pretty well that you just have to assume I mean you know that failure is norm you know it's normal um, and you know if you do that and we, uh, we knew this uh, I used to write a lot of software for the palm pilot if you remember the palm pilot yeah. and uh, the old Palm 7, um, which was pretty much one of the first smartphones around. Um, and it, well, it had wireless capabilities at least. Um, and the, the mantra there was when writing a mobile app was to always assume that the network will fail. And it right. does. 
you know, all the time. And even if it doesn't, you're still in a really good position, you know, because uh, you will have outages on occasion for various reasons, you know, power may go out at a, at a tower or whatever, you know. Um, so if you build, you know, for that lowest common denominator of uh, your network will fail and will be unattainable, you actually end up with a pretty resilient solution. And that's exactly where we've ended up here. You know, so it's definitely like, you know, we've done things the ACA way, if you want to put yeah. it in those terms. Yeah. yeah. Before, before we start talking about your actual product and platform, uh, Pharmify, I just wanted to go over some of the use cases or rather examples where where iot is popping up most or where maybe rather where it's most needed um yeah. on a farm and and for people who know nothing about farms how do you uh explain the why this matters and and what we're trying to achieve here and what the problem is this is a great question i love i love this one in fact i love all your questions Oliver. but you know this <laughs> one it's particularly good because uh, you know, when we think about ag tech, you know, which is the, the subject here, um, we think about, we like to talk about drones and we like to talk about robots, you know, robotic weed, weeders and all sorts of stuff, you know, and those things do exist and they definitely have a place. But you know what? Um, we actually solve a lot of the simpler problems for farmers. And this really appeals to them. So, you know, technically they may not be as, um, you know, attractive as, you know, auto, an autonomous drone flying everywhere and so forth, you know, but um, they're, they're really important and still kind of interesting. So things like, for example, the, you know, the simple act of monitoring the water level in a water tank, we kind of think is a bit dull, but it's mm -hmm. critical to a farmer, you know, a day without water for their livestock is, is, no livestock the livestock will die you know in 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 the middle they, of our they, time. We, we won't be able to use the word livestock anymore no they'll be dead stock for sure you know so uh a lot of farmers therefore don't feel as though they can even leave the farm right because they've got to be there just to keep monitoring the situation and um and then you know you can imagine some of our farms are quite large i think on average farms here are four thousand hectares in size um, you know, so reasonable size and they take a little while to get around. How many, um, how so many kilometer, I'm sure listeners can look this up themselves if they don't know, but approximately how many kilometers on a side is, is that? Uh, well, so some of the farms I can tell you that we deal with, uh, uh, they, they generally sort of, you know, five to 10 kilometers. You know, we're getting data, traveling data over, you know, five to 10 kilometers. We were, Last week, we installed a new customer um, in, uh, in Western New South Wales, and we put soil moisture probes. So here's another use case, right? Mm. You know, uh, just measuring the soil moisture content in a cropping scenario. And the paddock that we put these four soil moisture probes in was 1.6 kilometers wide and seven kilometers long, right? So, That's so, for anyone, so for anyone out there who's who's thinking, you know, what's what's the big deal of looking at uh, looking at the water level? You know, people are probably imagining you you look out your window and you can see your your right. sheep or your your cows, um, yeah. but in reality, they're they're many miles or kilometers away from you. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, to get to some of these places, um, you know, you can be in the car. You know, the act of uh, so another scenario, a common one that we've been involved with is electric fence sensing. Okay, mm. and um, you know, the act of going out ten kilometers to an electric fence, you may do a few other things along the way. Um, you know, but then to actually test to see whether the fence is performing as it should be at the voltage required you know, to actually keep the animals away, that it's not shorting anywhere and so forth. Um, you know, that might take you an entire morning, right? And, and, it, and, and, you know, when you start considering as well that if your fence isn't working and your cattle start brushing up against the fence and they damage the fence, it will cost the price of an electronic fence sensor to fix it, just one incident, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the cost benefit weighs up very very quickly so and so it's, it's a no-brainer in that way it's a no-brainer yeah. yeah 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 and so so we like to say uh, we're interested certainly in the more complex uh requirements as well you know if, if if we get more complex problems to solve but in general they're they're not complex um they require simple sensing but a lot of it and um, and, you know, in, in the most reliable manner that we can manage. And, and I'll, I'll let you into another little secret here. Everything is about power, right? Making sure that these sensors have sufficient power that you're not having to replace their batteries, you know, every week or every month. You know, typically our sensors um, last, you know, 12 months plus on, on a couple of AA batteries. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, some of the more power hungry devices will have their own solar panel and so forth, you know, mm -hmm. um, but so, so we're, we're using we're using relatively inexpensive uh, chips and and processors and also commodity, you know, battery power. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the idea is that you don't want to spend much time having to maintain these devices on, to, on yeah, top of on top of uh, considering their power consumption. That's uh, right. How did, how did, what what yeah. did you have to do? What kind of, uh, did you have to do anything special to ensure that power consumption was was going to be low um, versus, you know, how much, how much it needs to phone, how much devices need to phone home back to their uh, central mm -hmm. unit for, for receiving telemetry? Um, yeah. Maybe, what, maybe we can actually talk about how this is all done and, and how it works. Um, okay. You can uh, you can tell us about Pharmify, which sounds something something between a uh, an e-commerce platform and a Facebook game, uh, <laughs> but I, I love the name. So tell us about oh, Pharmify, Chris. Well, Pharmify is kind of like you know Wi-Fi for the farm. You know, it's probably yeah. the easiest way of thinking about it. And we we actually don't you know fundamentally use 80211, although, you know, that can be in the mix. Uh, essentially, and, and, and quite honestly, the farmer really doesn't care how you get data from one place to another, as long as it can be done economically, right? Mm -hmm. And at convenient, uh, a convenience to them. So um, there's a category of technologies called LPWANs, low powered wide area networks. Mm -hmm. uh, LoRaWAN is one such technology that fits into that place, uh, into that space, sorry. Um, the increasingly with uh, another one is MBIOT, which uh, we're doing a little bit more with now as well. MBIOT is like LoRaWAN, similar radio performance. Mm -hmm. um, but instead of having to install gateways, uh, we can use uh, telecommunications 
telecommunication companies and their towers. Uh, so it just depends on how close you are to one of those towers. You, you've got to be within 20 kilometers or so. Um, but it's a lot easier to get started with that. So that, and then increasingly we're seeing low Earth orbit satellite uh, on the, you know, certainly mm. on the horizon. I would say right now that there's not enough satellite going over continuously to get um, 24 readings a day. You know, we generally sam sample one reading an hour and send it back. Uh, low Earth orbit satellites, we our experience so far is, um, you know, you're getting data back maybe once a day or twice a day, you know, so it's not quite there yet, but it's, it's definitely something to watch out for. Um, so FarmerFire though, fundamentally is actually about making this, e you know, instrumenting your farm easy for the uh, farmer to consume. You know, if you were to go go out there and try and do this yourself, you, you certainly can. You know, um, you can research LoRaVan, you can buy off-the-shelf hardware and get things up and running. And I do know a few farmers that have done that, you know, but it's it's a difficult space to navigate. So what we do fundamentally is we help help farmers navigate this space and solve the problems that you know they're looking to actually solve, and and that's really what the Farmify brand is is about, and it's underpinned with technology as well, which you know we can talk about now, of course, you know, but that's fundamentally what the Farmify brand is about, you know, and that technology underneath it will change over time, um, and has impact. Yeah, I was I was just thinking as you were describing the different. Um, <clears throat> kind of uh, uh, messaging or communication protocols in use. I was thinking this this kind of start is starting to sound like an Apple AirTag or a tile. Um, because, I, because when the first thing you, I noticed on your website is that you do provision the physical devices as well as the, the software and the platform for it. And so that, that's something that, that obviously took a, took a, a decision to do. Um, so uh, maybe you could tell us what uh, maybe it's part of the entire goal of, of Titan classes to provide the entire package for, for farmers. Is that correct? Well, Farmify, yeah, as distinct from, uh, so Farmify is, is a brand obviously of, of Titan class. And I just want to okay. make that distinction because ah, I just you. want to highlight something else that we're doing within Titan class in, in a second. But um, just on the provisioning, you know, from a Farmify point of view, we feel that it's very, very, very important that we, uh, you know, if a farmer buys a device from us or through us, that when it's delivered to them, it works straight away. They don't have to configure it or anything. You know, they simply have to turn it on. That is mm -hmm. it, right? That's that's our promise to them. And I'm really pleased to say, you know, we've been able to deliver on that. You know, it really has been that simple for them. Mm -hmm. um, things do go wrong. You know, I'm not saying everything's perfect. You know, but uh, I wouldn't believe you if you said nothing went wrong. <laughs> all things go wrong you know actually one of our biggest problems is uh, bird poo on solar panels so i can let you in on that one yeah you know? so what are so maybe maybe we can talk about some of the some of these things you know what, what are what are things that you didn't expect to have to deal with such as yeah. bird poo on a solar panel well, yeah, there's certainly that, you know, uh, various forms of uh, wildlife chewing through cables. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard, we've had a massive mouse plague here in rural Australia. Um, you know, one of the biggest ones in, you know, for a very long time. And, uh, you know, mice, uh, not that we've been fortunate so far, you know, but I've certainly been out to farms and seen 
uh, a lot of electrical damage through you know mice chewing through cables and that kind of stuff so you do see that um birds do like to rest on uh you know these antennas and towers that we help farmers put up mm -hmm. um so you know we have to uh take uh, action there I, I i'll say now fishing wire is is a really good deterrent for birds you know you make it really uncomfortable for them to perch on something and they tend not to and it actually really does work extremely well um but i, I think in summary my, my my biggest surprise if i look back at the journey was just my um lack of appreciation of how much uh uh power consumption itself was you know, you know, in terms of the its importance in the equation here, it is everything. It really is everything. We have to go keeping keeping that as efficient as possible, or having access to it. Uh, well, yeah. all of all of the above, I presume. It does, and and you know what, Oliver, it actually impacts even the programming language that you choose and how how you write that programming language. You know, I've got a little device here called a Power Profiler, which is a hardware power profiler i can hook it up to the board of you know one of these devices and i can flash code to that thing and i can tell you that uh, by changing you know what you do in those lines of code um that that actually affects power consumption quite dramatically really you, know, so you actually have to measure it yeah That's fascinating yeah and the choice of language makes a big difference as well right huge difference so um, there is a paper out there on the the um, energy efficiency of computing languages, and uh, number one is C, uh, mm -hmm. and number two is Rust. You know, so we use a lot of Rust in mm. our world as well. You know, at the edge, um, and these things have to run in a very small amount of memory, and um, you know, very few cores. You know, a single core. It's <laughs> a single core, right? In, if in they general, could do a half right? core, you would try to run it on that. Actually, I do have a half course story. <laughs> uh, we, I, was, uh, I was joking. I don't even know if that's. I know. <laughs> well, the, well, when we started, you know, and as you mentioned, Cisco uh, basically funded us at the beginning. Mm -hmm. they, you know, we, we were a spin off of, uh, of Cisco. And part of that was that we needed to run on Cisco hardware. And uh, so our first incarnation of this product, of some of the technology, was to run on these uh, Cisco IR8829 uh, computers, with, uh, which were routers, in, in essence. Hmm. And they had two cores, but they only uh, provided 80% of one core to application software. Right. So uh, we actually got the JVM uh, running on that platform uh, we actually had seven ACO-based microservices running in about 350 megs of RAM in total, right? So, which um, was pretty good, you know, big, is quite a feat, you know, with the, the JVM to actually achieve that. And it, and it works, you know, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to sort of get there, you know, but, um, uh, you know, you can certainly make ACO itself work in very small spaces. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how you how you built Pharmify and and what you're using from Akka and different programming languages. But um, so what you just described was a eighty percent of one core running mm -hmm. seven Akka microservices and mm -hmm. with three hundred and fifty megabytes of of uh, RAM. Yeah, 
and th that worked. That's <laughs> that's got to be one of the smallest deployments I've ever heard of. <laughs> I, 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 you know, if you hear of anything smaller, do let me know because okay, I reference, you know. So uh, I've heard of bigger, but <laughs> yeah, well, you, that's just it. You know, it, you know, I, in, and I look at three hundred fifty megabytes now, and I, you know, I go, that's just. Far too That's much. My latest uh, email app uh, up, uh, download on, on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. You know, and, uh, you know, when we write software, though, for these end devices themselves, you know, in languages like Rust, as I mentioned, you know, our programs are, we're talking about, you know, 20 to 40K in size. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, not 350 megs, you know. So, uh, but that's just the JVM, and you know there were there were good reasons for us to choose the J the JVM as a target at that point. What Cisco wanted to do was to build a platform, and they wanted to attract people to that platform. And so the criterion was to attract well-established communities with well-established technology that have proven itself. Right, mm -hmm. and so um, not necessarily the best technology for a an end device you know or resource constrained target but you know as i say that wasn't the only criterion there were a few criterions and you know it did work and it worked well you know so it, it was a good decision on that basis yeah yeah uh, but sorry, you wanted to talk, talk a little bit more there actually yeah, about well, how, how did you build yeah. farmify and um yeah i i want to also talk a little bit about um the kind of upcoming uh, serverless uh, wave sure. as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Right. All right. Have to take us there. Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, the, the fundamental uh, building block for our services were ACA streams, right? So, you know, the streams to me are the, the you know, the, the modern programming paradigm. You, know, can you, you express a program fundamentally as, as a stream, you know, quite often. And so um, ACA Streams was front and center of that. Um, we used a, a few other technologies. Yeah, uh, we, we actually uh, are an event-first architecture. And, uh, you know, if I could have squeezed Kafka into this environment, I probably would have, but we... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's just no chance in hell that you're going to get that running in uh, that you know on, in, in such a small amount of memory. Forty and, kilobyte uh, uh, Kafka topic. <laughs> well, that's right. So, so we actually uh, used uh, another technology called Chronicle Q, which is a commit log as well. So very similar in its approach, uh, but it was just designed for high frequency trading. Um, and actually work pretty well and works pretty well in resource constrained environments. So we have a commit log at the center of everything, of all of our services um, in much the same way that you would use Kafka. And we have uh, ACA streams consuming and producing to that commit log, you know, from various services. And then there are a few security services around that. A lot of security, a lot of encryption built in. Um, Cisco are pretty big on that, you know, uh, um, <clears throat> their brand is strongly associated with security. And so, you know, we had to meet the bar uh, there very, very early on as well. So, but fundamentally, yeah, you're looking at uh, uh, compositions of, of ACA, ACA streams and we were very careful to avoid abstracting over ACA. We wanted to expose ACA, right? So we're not trying to smooth things over there. Uh, we wanted to, uh, to compose it more so than mm -hmm. abstract over. 
different in a, in a big way. And I think it's, that's been very, very successful. The system um, holds up pretty well. It's designed all to run at the edge on farm, you know, with no internet connectivity whatsoever, right? You know, that's fundamentally, it's, it was its design principle. Um, what we uh, have and, and how that works well is, uh, you know, if you do lose internet connectivity, then it just resumes from where it left off in terms of replicating, you know, to the cloud uh, for, for backup and analysis sort of reasons, um, uh, you know, when networks uh, come back online. So that that model, that approach is that resiliency has really, really worked well. Um, and you know what, when you get stuff running really well, on resource constrained devices, they tend to run really, really, really well in the cloud, right? And so, you know, we can run everything at the edge or in the cloud or have a blend of both. Um, and so, you know, if we know that a farm has good internet connectivity and, you know, most do from the homestead itself uh, or near where the gateway is, you know, that we're putting in place, then, um, then we'll leverage that, you know, and we'll just host everything in the cloud, right? If it's if it's not so good, then we can do everything at the edge and make use of uh, communication, um, you know, when it becomes established. And the reason I wanted to make a little bit of a distinction between FarmFi and Titan Class as well. So again, Titan Class is the company, and FarmFi is a brand focused, you know, on uh, products uh, in the in the domain of agriculture. Um, is because Titan Class's mission is to actually get data out of hard places. That's what we do, mm. right? Fundamentally, and uh, we have a number of other projects, and one which I love to talk about as well, but we're probably not going to get too much time to talk about it, is a climate science project where um, we're working um, with a local university to instrument a sub-Antarctic island um, off New Zealand. It takes three days to get to by boat, and mm. uh, there are no humans there. There's no mama, mama, there's nothing there, zero there. And, uh, you know, what they're doing is, what they're wanting to do is to uh, understand um, how stressed the Great Southern Ocean is. And they can do that by taking various uh, readings from instruments um, on, the, on the island. Uh, and then of course, we will have to communicate that opportunistically to satellites as they pass. You know, so that same architecture can work in a field or it can work, you know, in the sub-Antarctic mm. scenario. So the, 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 this island is, is identified as, as being particularly uh, ideal for, for analyzing data of this sort? Yeah, because it's so pure, so mm. unpolluted down there, you know, that, that's what makes it a pretty good barometer in terms of how the great submersion itself is doing in terms of its ability to absorb carbon. Interesting. That sounds, yeah. that sounds very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that outside of, outside of Pharmafy. Well, it's kind of like, again, more about, you know, Titan class getting data out of hard places. Farms are hard to get data out of full stop. Right. And no one should think that's easy. And, and right? they're, they're rather accessible. <laughs> So yes, exactly. going, going yeah. even going to even harder places uh, sounds like a, a great a great mission. I'd love to take this to the moon and to Mars. Well, I, really I think uh, Uncle Uncle Elon, uh, I believe he he's rather well funded these days. So, <laughs> well, if you uh, can put if, me, in he's listening. Maybe maybe he can uh, <laughs> he can get in touch. Um, no quickly, I wanted to quickly ask you about. Um, 
both serverless and and also 5G because we are talking about um, being uh, being able to to get telemetry, get data out of hard places, regardless of whether you've got a reliable network connection or not. Um, when when the when when it becomes accessible, you will have that data. Is the point? Um, so I'm curious how you see both 5G on the on the um, communication kind of protocol level and serverless in terms of that very, very lightweight, ideally resource efficient um, model. Do you see those coming together for for agricultural IoT in the future? I have a very strong view on IoT, uh, sorry, on 5G and IoT. Mm. Uh, IoT in principle does not need 5G. What 5G brings to the table is increased bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Now, there are obviously some IoT applications that could benefit from increased bandwidth, but by and large, you know, when we talk about IoT payloads, you know, the packets of data, you know, that are transmitted by these little end devices sitting out in a paddock in the middle of nowhere, uh, we're talking in general, maybe 12 to 20 char- characters of data, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you can actually get away with the weakest 3G signal. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you don't need 5G signal right? even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or no 3G at all. You know, so um, we have in IoT in general very little in in the way of bandwidth requirements. So 5G doesn't bring much to the game there. Mm-hmm. Serverless is is always interesting, of course, because of you know naturally. Um, if we can bring down our cost uh, to actually host our systems and reduce complexity at the same time, then of course, you know, I mean, why would that not be of any great appeal to us? So I definitely see there, you know, some opportunities in serverless architectures. We we aren't using any of them ourselves at this point, but uh, certainly interested in that serverless and seeing, you know, where that goes in the future. Excellent. Uh, Chris, before we finish today, just what are some of your thoughts about the the future of programming languages and and IoT uh, in general? Anything you'd like so, to share? Oh, for sure, yeah. And look, you know, I I have to say that to date, uh, you know, in, again in my four decades of programming, that um, Scala is still my favorite programming language. And I don't say that because I'm talking to like Ben. So, I mean, Scala's got a life of its own anyway. Um, I, you know, I think it is a beautiful programming language. Um, uh, Rust follows very closely by, but I think what's common, um, and, I, and, and Rust, I mean, really is quite amazing in terms of, you know, how well it runs in the small spaces in which it runs and so forth. Um, but the commonality of programming languages that grab me, if you like, uh, is that they help us write correct software. And this is so important, you know. So again, this is part of the Titan class vision itself is to write, you know, high quality, correct software. And programming languages that help us do that are, you know, going to be favored by us. Um, so that is certainly the common trait between Scala and, and, and Rust, for example. They're very similar. They have this ML heritage and they, they're quite easy to transition to as a Scala or a Rust developer. You know, you can go either way um, as long as you remember to put a semicolon in the right place and that kind of stuff. Huh. Um, 
In terms of the future of IoT, uh, we uh, well, <laughs> I think the future there is Rust as well. I'm, I'm strongly involved in the Rust embedded community. Um, I've started to teach. Um, I've started to teach people how to do Rust embedded programming on the BBC microbit. I don't know if you've come across the microbit yet, but I've started to use microbits in schools a lot. Um, in school classroom scenarios, and uh, they're wonderful devices uh, for teaching people embedded programming at a very low level as well. So um, I would hope, you know, that we, in terms of IoT, we have this uh, continued focus on uh, reduced energy consumption. In fact, in computing in general, I think we need to really think about energy efficient computing. It's a, it's a really hot topic, and I and you know my my big my big thought that someone should run away with here, you know, if they're listening to this uh, podcast, uh, you know, uh, you know maybe Jeff Bezos is listening in or something like that, uh, or maybe this is you know something that Aka uh, Lightbench should do with Aka Serverless, right? You know, I I wouldn't be uh, charging people by CPU cycles. I would be charging people by energy consumed you know, in terms of running their programs and incentivize people to write low energy programs because huh. uh, it's very important for our program, for our planet, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the unit, uh, the unit of energy consumed per, per function or per mm -hmm. event handled, uh, that, that's going to become more and more critical to recognize and, and start to uh, make as efficient just, as possible I yeah think. I agree with you oh, just per, per, per hour you know we pay yeah. for energy into our houses you know by kilowatt hour so you could you could charge by by the hour yeah well Chris this has been just a fascinating conversation I really appreciate you uh getting on getting on the call with me uh we we are 10 and a half hours uh apart I believe yeah, we're, we're 10 and a half hours ahead. Yeah, know, right? so, yeah, yeah, so, we're, we're, so <laughs> we're both meeting at the extremes of our of our work days. And uh, so thank you. Is, is, are, there, uh, are there any places you would like to uh, tell our listeners to, to find you? Uh, we'll certainly include them in the, uh, in the posting of this, of this conversation, but uh, where would you like to tell people to, to learn more about you? Well, um, about me personally, if you search for Christopher Hunt software, you'll find my blog there, I think, somewhere. Um, but Titan Class itself is titanclass.com.au. Yeah, and I can be reached from there for sure. All right. Well, again, Chris, this was really a pleasure. It was wonderful to catch up with you uh, after, after some years. And, Indeed. Uh, it's thanks. always a pleasure. It's always yeah. a pleasure chatting with you, Oliver, and you know, seeing you again. I wish we could... Uh, uh, you know, meet up and have a beer again at some point in the future. Absolutely. We could even uh, do some shopping for running shoes in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris, for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.